0: Thanks. How's that? Good? Thanks for coming. (laughs) I'm from Philadelphia. Um, I wrote a very light, fizzy little book about uh, corpse removal and deep emotional dysfunction. So I'm going to read some of that for you right now. I'm going to read this um, in honor of Manuel's cat. My hands shook as we pulled up in front of a tiny row home on another treeless northeast Philadelphia street. I was cold. No topcoats had been dropped on me. But much more so, I was scared. I wasn't so good with corporal realities, was cursed with far too many useless sensitivities. As a boy, I had thrown up at the sight of a contortionist on the Merv Griffin show. One lunchtime, when I was maybe five, I gripped the rim of the kitchen sink and gagged when my mother told me her sandwich was cold meatloaf and ketchup. As a toddler, I vomited if I got too close to my sister's diaper changes. On drives to the Poconos, I enjoyed getting motion sick and throwing up all over myself. I continue to be afraid of most animals with tails, including cats, rats, mice, monkeys, and especially possums. I hate the zoo. One winter night, when I was 15, while putting out the trash in the alley next to our house, I had backed out the door because I was talking to my mother in the kitchen and putting trash in the can was something I could have done blindfolded. I sensed something looking at me. And when I turned, the tips of my fingers reaching for the cans lid were maybe an inch from the wide eyes of a possum. A cat would have scrambled away but this thing stared perfectly still. In the half second before I skipped frantically back into the house, I believe it made a claim on my soul. I collapsed on my side on the living room floor, kicking myself around in a circle. I came to rest as a tensed ball, the soft insides of my elbow and knee joints clamped tight, and I emitted little moaning cries while my mother stood over me. Grow up, she said. This is all to say I was one of the least likely young men to wind up among the inherent repugnancies of handling corpses. Even worse, my dad had told me about hazards such as loose bowels and the tissue thin skin of old people that tore in his hands. And I had never seen this thing called a removal. I didn't know how intricate or demanding it would be. I feared making my debut in front of a family I imagined as agitated and suspicious. I was a wreck. Dad went into the house first, alone, to carry out some basic reconnaissance. This meant extending his and the funeral director's condolences to the family, but more important for us, learning if the body was upstairs or down, whether the weight of the body was manageable for two men, were there excesses of blood or shit to deal with, was the body in bed, on the floor, in the tub, on the toilet? While he did this, I sat in the passenger seat of the hearse and tried to calm myself with the radio. Hey guys, great topic tonight, a caller said. My answer is sure, I would let Iverson babysit my kids. At 22, I tried to spend every waking minute accompanied by noise. The sports talk station too I listened to, 610 AM, had adopted its format when I was in the sixth grade. And from the first week, I was a religious listener. Maybe once a month, Gaz, another friend, Wilbur, or I would call the others and say, turn on your radio. The week before, I had alerted them like this and then made it on the air with Howard Eskin, the self-proclaimed king of afternoon drive time in Philadelphia. Hey Howard, I'd said, in a cartoonish mimic of the most nasal, vowel-shifted Philly accent I could manage long-time caller, first-time listener. My question is this, it's more of a technical question. Okay, he said. That yellow line across the field they put on TV to mark the first downs. Yeah, he said. Do the players ever trip over that? He hung up on me, and thanks to the station's seven-second delay, I turned up the radio to tape my call. Great call, genius, Eskin said. You know what you call a guy like that? He asked his audience. A zero who wants to be a one. That's what that guy is. A zero trying to be a one. All right, I'm gonna go back now and read the very beginning of the book. But let me take some water. You're so quiet. My friend who sat behind me in first grade is sitting right here. (laughs) We grew up two blocks from each other. All right, here we go. Dad parks the hearse at the curb under a pink-petaled dogwood in the glory of that first balmy April Saturday afternoon. We're on Castor Avenue in front of a tan brick apartment building, treeless courtyard, three stories high, a block long but invisible, a place that marks the edge of our Philadelphia neighborhood and the next, a structure populated by pensioner, bachelor, mailmen, and mothers and toddlers learning English together. At the rec center diamond, across the street, screams of go follow an aluminum plink. At the corner, tulips in yellow, red, violet, planted to partition the sidewalk from a tiny row house lawn, salute a crew-cut man in a tank top, gold crucifix swinging as he sponges his four-wheeled stereo. The fried onions from the grill at the steak shop a block away whisper that the cold and dark have passed and we've been delivered somewhere better. And yet inside our little brick houses, these last six months, a secret part of us wondered, is this the year winter doesn't end? A girthy old woman in her sleeveless summer house dress, sunlight warming her arms for the first time this year, hoses the dirt under her rose bush. She looks like a Helen. She might be a Carol. An ambulance lines up at the red light like all the other cars, in repose, maybe coming back from an oil change. Dad and I leave the car and walk into the courtyard where a man in a fishing hat and a yellowed V-neck T-shirt, maybe 65, sucking a cigarette, raises a hand. I'm the brother-in-law, he says. It's sunny, humid. Dad is 50 years old, solidly built, clean-shaven, glasses, gray hair, shiny and wavy like a trial lawyer's. He cuts his own hair in the bathroom mirror because he knows he can do better than any barber left in our neighborhood. I am a head taller than he, gangly, a day-pass clean-shaven, with glasses, and though not yet balding or a mental patient, I keep my hair in a self-inflicted buzz mostly because I assume I would screw up a scissor cut. If the brother-in-law had met us in different circumstances when he wasn't in shock, he might have noticed the same long nose on both of these removers. Or at least he would have noticed the sweat beating on our foreheads. Or my polyester suit, a fledgling. Or how sharp Dad looks, suit of lightweight wool, loafers polished and tasseled, white pocket square, as if he'd slid dressed like this out of the womb. But the brother-in-law doesn't really see us, He says hello, of course, and thanks us for coming, but the living parts of him have retreated far away behind the corneas. I recognize this kind of distance. Besides, the brother-in-law has never seen us before and will never want to again. These who've shown up on what I guess is the worst day he's had in a while, maybe ever. We are nobodies, strangers. We aren't the funeral director who perches every Sunday in the front pew at Mass. We are men made to be forgotten, here to take away the shell of his brother-in-law. He'll never think on us again. I feel right away a rush from this. We're paid to be invisible. And yet there's another part of me, reasonable, accountable, button-down, that likes how useful this work makes me. The brother-in-law says Carl lived alone. We hadn't heard from him for a few weeks, which wasn't strange but the neighbors called the cops today about a smell. He opens his eyes a little wider and shakes his head. He's been in there a while. Just as I had dismissed my dad's assurances on my first removal, I brush aside the brother-in-law's warning. He's not used to these things the way we are, I think. I assume I've seen and touched and smelled the limits of the job's gruesomeness. By the time we've walked a few paces to Carl's front door, I know I'm wrong again. His windows and the door are shut, but what awaits us seeps out. At the first whiff, my heart feels like it might come bursting through my armpit. Dad looks at me and says, we'll be okay. When he opens Carl's front door, I have never smelled anything worse. Imagine being waterboarded on the hottest day of summer with the maggoty brine dripping from the back of a garbage truck. And we're still 15 feet from the closed bedroom. We move to the back of the apartment, wheeling the stretcher, breathing through our jacket sleeves. We stop just outside his room. Dad and I don't speak, but share a look. I know in my eyes, at least, there's terror. How bad will it be in there? What will this guy look like? but there's also an element of disbelief. Have our lives really brought us here? Is dad the guy with a book of poems? Am I the kid who won a full ride to college a few years ago? A split second where the job's simple awfulness brings into focus the downward trajectory of our circumstance. Uh, where's our guy here? I don't know, you think I should do two more or one more? One more? All right. Alright, this, uh, this takes place at a really terrible bar in West Philly called Foo Bar. One warm Saturday night in October 1995, I was 19 in my last semester at LaSalle. I went out with Gaz, his girlfriend Kelly and a pack of the guys Gaz had grown up with to a punishingly loud club in West Philadelphia called FUBAR. Gaz's buddies, sweet and tender hooligans, found fistfights every other time they went out. And their idea of fun was to wait for one of their cohort to pass out drunk and set his feet on fire. Chuchi, Bopper, Bobbo, Dom 1, Dom 2, Schroeder, Pooj, there were maybe a dozen and a half of these guys. And they had all grown up within a few blocks of each other in Port Richmond. Most of their parents had grown up together too. They made me ache at the thought of how sparsely kid populated my corner of Frankfurt had been. Gaz was the only one of them who traveled with a friend from another neighborhood. For whatever reason, probably because I was harmless seeming, they accepted me. Still they must have thought the two of us were weird. I was long and goofy, big ears, hands, feet, skinny with the muscle tone of a newborn, a head taller than Gaz, who was fit and handsome, with long straight hair like Graham Parsons. And we spent most of our time whispering to each other. In this era, Going to a club like this, one aimed at attracting hordes of white kids with fake IDs, meant subjecting oneself to a never slackening dosage of Alanis Morissette. So we too spent the night conferring, huddled so as to defend the nobler flame of our culture, swallowing large amounts of bitter yingling porter, as was the custom while mixing in occasional shots that were thrust toward our faces by friends. Kamikazes, Alabama slammers, lemon drops, and straight up doses of Jägermeister and Goldschlager. (laughs) Green, listen, green is not better than reckoning. It's not. Let me just say that because that just, that just feels important to say out loud. Here's a question for you. Does reckoning have hair shirt? Does green have harbor coat? I am not the type of dog. The real killer, you know what the real killer is. Tell me, is world leader pretend? I sit at my table. Seems like it's all, it's all for nothing. The one song on that record though, you know what it is. The one we'll be listening to in 50 years. Do you see that ass? Talk to her, I need an ass like that. Go talk to her, maybe in a minute I will. The one I want to hear when the lights are out and I'm in a fight with Kelly and nothing's making me feel better. Yep. the one that may or may not put a lump in my throat every time I hear it. I know, say it, you are the everything. We've talked about this a dozen times. Might be their best song, period. Who am I to argue? drifting off to sleep with your teeth in your mouth. For as much as I loved pop songs, for as strong as my yearning was for the intimacy of a human voice coming through headphones into my body, for as much as it was the only love I knew how to receive, A transfusion of tender, sacred self setting my breastbone limp like ramen. Joni Mitchell making my shins go cold. The harmony in the Beach Boys meant for you rolling bumps up the back of my neck. And in the harmony, or maybe simply in the effort to harmonize, the suggestion of communion between the Wilson boys. As if this were the prerequisite. Before a woman, first you must love your brothers however music helped nourish my heart in these days when my home life was breaking it, however much it tried to instruct me in the sensual responsiveness of my body, however much I loved music and needed it, Gaz loved it and needed it more. His little brother was not coming back. At least my parents, ghosts that they'd become, walked among us. He was electrified with an underground sadness, soothed only with the right songs. He was my teacher. Thank you. You I'm gonna take some questions. Anybody wanna know about dead bodies or anything? How bad did it get? I mean, were there bodies have been Yes, and yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. The worst, the worst. <laughs> I was I was in the job for ten years, so yeah, saw everything. How did it change you? Twenty four ninety nine, right here. Don't answer that. No, it changed me. You know, well, I mean, you know, it's hard to say because I also got ten years older. You know. But um, I think change came at the end. I got more responsibility in my work at the end, you know, and could feel uh, you know, that I was helping people, you know, not to sound too cliche or corny, yeah. I, was, I, I got to the point where I could tell that, you know, I'd been in the job long enough and I was competent enough that I started to, you know, do good for people and that, that made me grow up a lot, I think, once I started to get that feeling. Oh, I read the book. How old were you when you started? Were you... I did it from 22 to 32. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you stop? Uh, well, I got to the point where I, you know, it was either go to mortuary school and become a funeral director and do it for real until I was 70 or go. You know, I was sort of at the point where I was Kind of treading water, Um, and I I I wanted to go. I wanted to see what I could do with writing. You know, yeah. So were you writing at the same time, doing this? (laughs) Not in any real way. I was noodling, and then I would quit for four years at a time. You know, uh, yeah. Nothing that was. I I didn't have any sort of writing practice. No. Smalley. Hey. (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah. Why did I decide to write a book about this? Yeah. Um. Well, you know, I I grew up. My dad is a writer, um, and I grew up knowing I wanted to write. And I actually, when I lived, I lived in this neighborhood in two thousand and four, and I had a friend who was starting a zine. Do you remember zines from back then? <laughs> Um, it was a zine about weird jobs and she said, she asked, asked all of her friends, will you submit a little five-page essay about your worst job? And I wrote, um, actually the section that s- starts the book, I wrote like the kernel of that part. And I thought, oh, I have something here. And then I went to graduate school and I wrote a few more. I was in a nonfiction seminar. And I thought, oh, well, I, you know, I have some good material for this class, you know, and I wrote a few more parts, and a teacher sort of said, you know, you should really try to make a book out of this, and that was it, yeah. All right. Oh, sorry. Sorry, are you saying you chose one non-fiction writing class? Is Because this second the Oh. the book that I'm reading on how to write fiction <laughs> with non-fiction tones, Hey. Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, classes don't really matter. And the, and the, The, you know, classes matter so that you meet people and that you form a little group and that you have someone to read your stuff and kick your butt and recommend books to read and give you deadlines. And, you know, I, I think that's what did it more for me than any one technique I learned in a class. You know, you don't remember the techniques you learned in class when you're, just sort of like weeping and you know, trying to write for another 30 minutes before the egg timer goes off, you know, it's just... yeah, you're just gonna bleed out, you know, it, you're not going to remember any techniques, I swear, <laughs> yeah. What's next? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, I, I probably have, you know, three months of rent left in the bank, so... Yeah, I might be a temp. Do You have a job offer? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to write a novel, but uh... yeah, it's gonna be gonna be a tight one. Yeah, <laughs> I might be. You know, I have experience. I could find work. Your novel be done in three months? Oh God. If it sucks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if someone will pay me to write this sucky novel, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Thank you very much.
1: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.